Hi. Good evening, one and all. Sorry for the a little bit of a late start. Eight minutes past the hour, quite a sacred time for mother. So I don't mind having gone eight minutes over in the puja, since it is after all eight. Now, nine minutes would have been something else, but eight minutes. So today I want to do something kind of transgressive. And as a practitioner of the Kaula Tantra, the kind of more transgressive, non-dual, goddess-worshipping variant of Tantra, which I believe strongly Sri Ramakrishna is a part, um, it's my favorite thing to be transgressive. So I'm going to have fun today. I hope you don't mind. The thing I want to say today above all is that it is good to have an ego. In fact, I'm going to make a strong case for it. I'm going to give maybe like five or six reasons why it's desirable in spiritual life to have what I'm going to call a spiritual ego. And in the course of this lecture, I'm going to explain the spiritual ego on a few different levels, on the level of the absolute transpersonal pure non-dual consciousness level, you know, and then and then slowly we'll step it down from there to like even more individual um, particular levels. But, but ultimately the argument is going to be that a spiritual ego is good. You know, what I'm really trying to combat is this false humility that we often see in spiritual communities. It's the, in one sense, it's pride um, veiled as humility. It's pride that wears as its flex humility. So it's the kind of pride that says, I'm humbler than thou. But that's not too bad, actually. You know what's worse? Weakness. As shaktas, worshippers of power who meditate on power all day, um, we become power. And so detestable to us is any form of weakness. It's a slight to the goddess. For I am that goddess. And to live according to weakness, to entertain any thoughts that come from weakness is the highest blasphemy in this tradition because it strays away from your true nature as not only powerful, but the source of all power, Shakti herself. So in the non-dual goddess variant of Tantra Kaula, it's important that you recognize your innate divinity as power and as such, don't make excuses. Don't whine, don't whinge, don't complain don't wins. So part of this lecture is to drown in the ocean of nectarian realization that weakness that parades around as humility. Because often when we're being humble, we must be careful. Are we being prideful in a negative sense in that we feel humbler than others? Or more commonly, as I, I found is the case, are we just being weak? Are we using our humility as a kind of cloak to cover our own lack of self-assurance or self-confidence? So obviously, a lot of this lecture is going to have a Swami Vivekananda vibe. For if you read Swami Vivekananda, all nine volumes, you could probably essentialize it to this one word, strength. Strength, 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 which is another way of saying Shakti, 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 power, power, power. Swami Vivekananda once said, in this age, the, the, the center of spiritual life is shifting from God to man. He didn't mean this in like some kind of Marxist, you know, Nietzschean God is dead way. He meant this with the fullest metaphysical significance of non-duality, that God is none other than your very own self. So when he said the center of spirituality shifts from God to man, what he meant to say was that it shifts from looking for something outside of yourself to recognizing your innate divinity that is already even now the case. So again, he would say something like, by thinking of weakness, you don't become strong. Marinate your mind in thoughts of strength. That's the only way to cure weakness. And he detested the sin language. He would say, sin? Sinners? It's a sin to call ye sinners. I call ye children of immortal bliss. And Sri Ramakrishna would say, I pity the wretch who calls himself a sinner because such a person only becomes drowned in more worldliness. You see, this kind of self-flagellating, this lack of self-confidence, this lack of self-assurance saps the strength out of our spiritual life and ensures that we don't actually make any progress towards becoming or rather manifesting the perfection that is already inher inherent in our nature. You see, so today, what I hope to do in the course of this lecture is to 
skewer on the, on the sphere of intellect all such things as false humility, as weakness parading around as humility. I hope to decapitate all guilt, shame, weakness. Um, and then I want to lick the blood off the sword and dance in the ecstasy of the nectarian realization of my own strength. So today's lecture is about strength. And I'm going to argue the only way to claim this strength is to recognize it. Svatama Pratya Bhigya, recognize that you already are that strength. So, um, you know, Swamiji, he once also said, um, so here's your third Swamiji quote, just to kind of round it up. He said, it used to be that atheism, I'm paraphrasing, it used to be that atheism was not believing in God. I say that the new atheism is not believing in yourself. Now, there are two levels to this statement. On one level, he means the self, capital S, Atman, Paramatman Supreme, Brahman, Shiva, what have you, right? But on another level, on a more psychological, maybe more like down-to-earth level, he means Quite practically, you yourself, the individual that is considering herself to be a jiva or a sadhaka, you have to believe in the strength of that. If you don't believe that you can do it, just like the Buddha and Christ before you did it, then you don't really have any legs to stand on when times get difficult in spiritual life. And they will. Like in Star Wars, um, when Yoda says, are you afraid? Uh, uh, or, or something like Luke said, uh, no, I'm not afraid. And Yoda goes, good, you will be. Right? There are going to be things in spiritual life that are scary, that are difficult. If you don't believe in yourself, if you don't believe in your own strength, you won't have the grounding. You won't have the uh, power to make it through those obstacles. So he meant that in the fullest sense of the word self. To believe in yourself is to reclaim your true nature as Paramatman Brahman Supreme, which we'll discuss in a little bit. But it also means on a practical level to believe in yourself. So that's what I want to do today. Okay, so hopefully by the end of this lecture, um, and by the way, the purpose of this lecture is realization. It's not enough to just hear a few things and believe some guy on the internet. It's I'm not trying to tell you, I'm trying to show you. So you must look to where I'm pointing and see for yourself and reclaim the power that is not only yours, but more than that is you. And that must happen by the end of the lecture. So my prayer to Divine Mother is that by the end of the lecture, Mother, may your sword be drenched with the blood of having decapitated my shame, guilt, weakness, whining, wailing, complaining. I will not have it. From the end of this lecture forward, there is to me no more wincing, no more whining, no more wailing, no more complaining. Not because you're repressing those things, but because you've grown out of those things, having sensed what you really are, the kind of thing that shouldn't be whining and groveling and moaning. Okay, now, obviously, all of this is couched in a very strong, no-nonsense, non-duality. You are God, etc., right? But um, what another, another, another feature of this lecture that I think will interest bhaktas, because already, right, there's like a feeling if you're a bhakta, you're like, but no, I'm attached to my hina, hina, hina. Hina in Sanskrit means I am nothing, I am nothing. So I like that. I like to rub my face on the floor in front of mother and say, I am the dust of the dust. I'm nothing, I'm nothing. Okay, wonderful. That's a wonderful path too, and it works. Sometimes you can grow so small that you can escape the net, okay? Today, I wanna to talk about growing so big that no net can catch you. So because typically what happens if you grow so small, you might get stuck somewhere before dissolution, and then all you have is a really puny ego, what I call the wimp ego, which has no strength for proper spiritual life. So I'm gonna make the case that if you want to be a bhakta, if you want to sacrifice yourself to God, that self better be a strong self. Your offering to God better be the most radiant, most powerful, most actualized, most grounded, most capable, most confident self ever. And I'll say it this way. If you're going to offer flowers at your altar, do you offer like wilted, three-day-old, sickly-looking flowers? 
right? Because that's what it looks like to me. All of you bhaktas claiming to be bhaktas, you go to God whining and complaining and wailing. And that's like giving God a very, very weak, wilted flower. I say, no, if you're going to give God flowers, give God fragrant, bright, fresh, radiant flowers, buzzing with its own strength, right? So if you're going to sacrifice yourself to God, better be a good sacrifice. If Mark Kali is going to take your head, it better be a head worth taking. <laughs> so ultimately, I'm going to make the claim at the end of this lecture from a bhakta point of view, like as a bhakta, as a devotee of God, I want to place before you a different ideal, a different ideal of self-flagellation, different ideal from the sin narrative of I'm not good enough. I want to suggest to you that there's a way to be a devotee without making yourself small. Because by trying to make yourself small, it doesn't make God bigger. By making yourself big, strong, and then recognizing how much bigger God is than that, ah, that's what I call devotion. Okay, so don't worry. Although much of this lecture is going to be couched in a no-nonsense non-duality, Allah Swami Vivekananda, um, the, the goal of all of this is actually bhakti, which as you know in Kashmir Shaivism is the pinnacle of enlightenment, bhakti. Devotion, adhyaya bhag, to become a participant or a devotee of that which can never be an object of meditation, which I'll explain in the course of the lecture. Whew. Isn't that going to be fun? So that's what I want to do, okay? You know, I'll just start with this. Um, in Australia, I, I lived in Australia for a little while, and there, um, they have a very nice word. I like it a lot, whinging. Have you heard that whinging? Have you ever heard the word whinging? So whinging, it means something like whining, complaining, wincing, just being kind of wimpy. Um, so that word has the connotation of you know, being disagreeable, um, but they call it whinging. And I, you know, Swami Vivekananda, I think, if he had visited Australia, would have really liked the spirit of the Australian people. You know, they're very, very fun, fun-loving people, very strong, very tough kind of crowd. And they're like very you know, rub some salt in it, kid, and get over it kind of vibe, you know? So they use this word whinging to explain a kind of weakness that they're culturally, you know, trying to root out. They say, quit your whinging. So, you know, they're like, they're like the British. You could, Swamiji was very fond of the, the... He had something good to say almost about every culture that he, he met. Um, and he would say something like, uh, you know, the British, they really have this grit about them. It's kind of like a keep calm and carry on. Maybe in Australia, you could say it's a keep calm and keep the Barbie on mentality. <laughs> Barbie is barbecue. My friends in Australia loved barbecue. Keep calm and keep the Barbie on. Such a fun-loving people that they didn't really have space, I think, many of the in many cases, for this kind of self-flagellation. I'm going to say that it's... I'm, I'm going to invalidate your feelings. I'm sorry. Because it is, to me, not valid that you feel this way because it's not in keeping with who you really are. So I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to show you. Today, in the course of the lecture, I'm going to show you what you are. You'll see it for yourself and whinging will be done forevermore. Okay? <laughs> so keep calm and carry on. Not quite. Keep calm and keep the Barbie on, maybe. But better than that is remember who you are and never whinge again. <laughs> so that's where we're headed in this lecture. It's going to be quite a strong dose. So let's, let's gear ourselves and let's get right into it. So the first thing I want to say is that how does this fit into our greater project of understanding the principles of Kashmir Shaivism? As you know, these Mondays now are a lecture series exploring some of the foundational principles of this Shaiva non-duality, a type of non-duality that is distinct from the Kevala Advaita of Shankara. So how does this fit into the bigger picture? Well, today we're going to introduce to you um, the model of the three malas which for right now, I'm just going to translate as the three primordial delusions. There are many different ways to translate the word mala, like impurity could be one, obscuration could be another. Um, but in the non-dual version of Tantra, in the Kaula, 
it's not seen as an actual impurity as it is in some of the more right-hand path orthodox schools, which we will address also at the end of the lecture, just to be kind of complete, right? Mother willing, we'll get to that. Um, so the three malas, the three impurities are as follows, and we'll talk about them more in the course of the lecture. The first is called anava mala. Anava from the Sanskrit anu means individual, but not really. Like anava mala means the impurity of a limited sense of individuality. So it's not the problem of ego. It's the problem of wrong ego. It's, it's not the problem of having an ego. It's just not recognizing an ego that's more inclusive, right? So anava mala is the impurity of smallness. It's the, really, it's the source of all whinging. The feeling that I am a small, incompetent, sin-ridden creature beset by many difficulties, which I don't have the strength to overcome. Now, what I'm going to suggest is I'm going to invite you to recognize an ego that is transpersonal. So I'm going to discuss how this will be the ultimate form of humility, because the type of ego that I'm going to put before you includes all other people too. So it's not an ego that lords over others as bigger than them, but it's an ego that seeds itself as everyone combined. So in Kashmir Shaivism, the interesting thing is that the ultimate claim is that ultimately speaking, there's only one person, God. There's only one, you are that person. You meaning all of you, not that there are many different gods, but there's one God experiencing itself and playing with itself through all of these different eyes. So what makes the non-duality of Kashmir Shaivism or Shaiva uh, uh, Advaita different from the non-duality of Vedanta or Kevala Advaita of Shankara is this, that while Kevala Advaita is about a principle, existence, consciousness, bliss, Kashmir Shaivism or Advaita Shaiva Paramadvaya philosophy is about a person and that person is you. So this is an ultimate kind of egoity, a different sense of the word jiva, a super jiva, if you will. So much a jiva that we call him Shiva. And, and that's ultimately who you are. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose that, yeah, exactly, Dylan. I'm going to propose that the goal of Kashmir Shaivism is to step into or rather reclaim or rather recognize who you truly are, which in some sense will mean the death of the small eye, but not by strangling or diminishing, but by enlarging the small eye to become this big eye. Okay, so it's the Swami Vivekananda approach, I'll say. So that's that's Anavamala. Now, as long as you have Anavamala, this feeling of being small, of being incapable, there are going to be two other malas that come from it. Sorry, I might have said mala. Mala means garland. It's mala. Mala means obscuration. Mala means garland. Very different meaning. So mala. Um, the, the second mala that comes from Anavamala, Anavamala being the primordial obscuration, the second one, or rather the second delusion, is um, Maya Mala. Maya Mala means the illusion of duality or differentiality, uh, dif differentiation. So if I think I'm a small, particular individual, then necessarily I'm different from other individuals. And necessarily there are things outside of me that I want, and there are things outside of me that I don't want, which will make my life a life of fear and craving, a life of conditioned existence, because all of my thoughts are going to be conditioned by the thought that there's something to get or something to remove. And that's going to create this utsahi, this kind of like agitation or striving. Okay, that's all coming from the, the, the perception of duality, which itself derives from the perception of smallness or limited ego. And finally, finally, the 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 mala of malas, right? Coming from anava, coming from maya is karma mala. Not karma mala, karma mala. So karma with that long a uh, is um, the adjectival form. So it's not the mala of action. Karma mala would be mala of action, but because this is the long a, uh, it's karma mala. It would be the um, obscuration or delusion of 
actionship or a doership, doership. The feeling, uh, basically doing based on mayiyamala, action that is driven by consequences or motivate, motivated by results like that. Um, so these three malas are keeping us from recognizing and living according to the highest truth that is even now available to us. So by the end of this lecture, I'll suggest a few, maybe like quote unquote, practical ways to get rid of these malas from the point of view of orthodox right-hand path tribism, which sees these malas as like real ontological like properties. They see these malas as um, energetic impurities that exist in the energy body that needs to be rooted out through a few techniques, which we'll discuss. At the Ramanuja also feels these. These are actual impurities. However, Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda, uh, Vivekananda, and also this Kaula Tantra tradition of which Kashmir Shaivism is a part, uh, rejects that they're actually real malas. They're not real. They're just imagined, right? So instead of using the word impurity, I prefer to use the word delusion. So you're going to get rid of what was never there. Starting with, first and foremost, the Anava Mana. So this is how this lecture fits into the broader scheme of our inquiry into Kashmir Shaivism. It's going to be an introduction to the three malas, particularly with reference to Anava Mala and particularly um, with the intention of dissolving it. So that's the journey. Are you excited? I'm so excited. Let's go. So remember, the promise is this. By the end of this lecture, you should feel not only transcendent, not only fully imminent, but also fully empowered such that you never become frightened again. In other words, you shouldn't feel any guilt or shame moving forward. And if you do, you just have to refresh this teaching. You just have to return to this insight. And that should be a cure, at least from an insight point of view, from a jnana point of view, to all feelings of guilt, shame, lack of self-confidence, lack of self-assurance, etc. In fact, we're going to leave each other today with a kind of, not a mantra, but a kind of mahavakya, which can be used as a mantra. So like a concise statement expressing the truth of your being, which you can do on several levels of japa and then ajapa as well. Okay, so where to begin? Let's start. But I don't know where to start. Like I joked yesterday, it always feels like in this lecture, there's a skipping rope and, and I'm trying to find where exactly to jump into the skipping rope. Because um, these ideas are subtle and they should be handled with some care um, and some nuance. So that's why I'm making sure I don't lose myself in a fit of enthusiasm and then um, miss out on a few things. So, okay. I like how Dylan is saying they, they read it, read it today, right? Dylan has read about the malas today. That's good. That means I, I know I'm on the right track. Okay. So I'm going to show you this diagram again. Now, this is the first model that we started working with together. I mean, we, we worked with others. We worked with the, you know, five powers of consciousness, the five actions of consciousness, kind of foundational ideas in Kashmir Shaivism. Um, but in terms of what it all means to you, this is, I think, the first Shuddha Vikalpa or the first practical map that we used for understanding that wordless reality, which is itself beyond all maps, but can be accessed through maps. So here is a map that we're going to use today in a different way from how we've been using it thus far. Um, now, I'm going to say this. Enlightenment, as you know, is really about an I am conviction. So what it is to be enlightened is to make the correct I am statement. Let me just say it that way. If you make the wrong I am statement, that means if I put in front of you a questionnaire, I am fill in the blanks. If you get the wrong answer in that blank, you suffer. But if you get the right answer in that blank, which you know could mean leaving it blank with full knowledge of the implication of that, if you get the right answer there, you'll never suffer. Not only will you be beyond suffering, dukkha nivriti, but you will also 
in, in a very important way, be um, united with the highest bliss, param and the prapti. So the promise is that if you can fill out this questionnaire, I am blank correctly, um, you will attain attain here in, in, you know, bunny ears because you already have it. But if you're able to understand what you are, what you truly are, and also what this world truly is, there will be the permanent cessation of all forms of suffering categorically and the attainment of the highest place. So that's the promise, right? But notice that it, 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 it all hinges upon the right use of the phrase I am. So I'm going to say now that there are six ways um, to say I am. Okay. The, I don't really know how I'm going to do this, but this is how I foresee this lecture going. I'm going to give you six ways to say I am on a horizontal plane. Then with the sixth I am, I'm going to flip it and go down a vertical plane of even deeper and deeper statements of the ultimate truth. So basically six understandings, five of them are wrong. One of them is right, but can be improved on and made more right in three distinct ways. So in other words, it's like six and three, okay? Six ways to say I am. Five of them are flat out wrong. One of them is sort of correct, but can be more correct or absolutely correct depending on the interpretation, which we will provide in the class. So just think of it that way. Six ways to say I am, five of them are wrong. And three ways to say I am, each more right than the former. <laughs> so that's the way I see it going. Let's see to what extent that's successful, Mao. So let's start with the horizontal plane, okay? Like the six I am statements. So the first five, all of them are wrong, but they're wrong in different degrees. And the degree to which you're wrong is the degree to which you'll suffer. So if I were to set up a scale, like two scales, one scale is the propensity for suffering scale. And the other scale is the propensity for joy scale. Maybe a third scale, the propensity to be a jerk scale. And maybe the, the opposite, the propensity to be like a bodhisattva, a really like ethical and good person scale. We can use this understanding to find where we are on any of these scales. Okay. So um, the first I am statement you can make is I am vastu meaning I am stuff. And as we said in previous lectures, this is the wrongest you could be about your true nature if I may use the phrase wrongest. This is the furthest from the truth. I am my possessions. I am my things. I am my bank balance. I am my car. I am my clothes. These are all the furthest from who you really are that necessarily they'll cause you the greatest suffering and bring the least fulfillment. Certainly some fulfillment. I mean, there's no reason why a person would say, I am my car if it didn't bring them some fulfillment. I'm not denying that. Surely you can feel aggrandized by having a big balance in your bank. Surely you can feel aggrandized by having a nice car or wearing like really fancy designer clothes. Like surely all of these things surely bring some form of joy. However, the problem doesn't come with the things. As Christ was clear to say, it's not money. It's the love of money. Or rather, I will say it's not um, the love of things, but the self-identification with things which is where the problem is, right? So if I say I am my stuff, I know that. I know that I'm making that statement, even if I don't actually make it to others, or even if I don't think I'm making it, I know for a fact I'm making it when I do veritably feel diminished by a loss of stuff or aggrandized by an increase in stuff, right? So if, if the change in my stuff causes a sense in a change of identity, then I know that on some level, I think I am my stuff. So I am Vastu is the most wrong you could be about who you are. So take, for instance, a person who is like this. Maybe we're talking about ourselves, but I'm just thinking of the archetypical person who might not exist, right? The archetypical caricature of the person who thinks that they are their stuff. I'm thinking like a jet-setting 
sort of corporate executive who rides around in a fancy car. And if you scratch that car, you've had it. They're going to be an absolute Wolverine in court and they'll make sure you pay for the tiniest of scratches because they feel like that scratch on their car is a scratch on their very being. They will not suffer such a thing to pass. So they'll flip out, they'll lose their shit. And um, because they're so interested in money, they're willing to sacrifice everything else for it, like their relationship with their kids or their relationship with their spouse or their health or their free time. Nothing matters but money. So you can think like the Wolf of Wall Street is maybe an interesting caricature. You know, I think a good cinema reference is the Wolf. You can see in that movie, there's a kind of emphasis on stuff, on wealth, on possession. And you could see the kind of misery that comes from that, right? Just the idea of, of, of premising your identity on yourself. It makes you the worst kind of person. So on the scale of like, on the jerk scale, on the jerkometer, a person who thinks that they are their stuff obviously ranks highest on the jerkometer because such a person will also see other people as stuff. Because they're made the statement, I am my stuff, necessarily, when they look at others, because they are their stuff, they'll say other people are their stuff. So they'll judge other people by what they have, what they own. And not only that, we'll see other people as commodities to be owned. Right. So their relationships tend to suffer. I was sitting with my friend who very brilliant. He went to Cambridge is a great economist, perhaps one of the most brilliant economists in my country. And I was having dinner with him and he turned down many, many profitable jobs um, to work in the government. He just wants to do some good. He's very ethical. not a very like, you know, spiritually inclined person in the sense that he meditates or prays. None of that. Right. He's a strict atheist. Yet he's one of the most spiritual people I know because he's given his whole life over to ethical values. Swamiji would have loved him. So Swami Vekananda would have loved him. Anyway, he's a, he's a brilliant economist. And I was talking to him about all of these, you know, fancy high flying jobs. And he said to me, those friends who I have who took such jobs, um, motivated by the money, I noticed that when I talk to them, they're very calculative. Like when they reply to my text about coming to dinner, I can sense, he's saying, that there's like this cost benefit analysis happening all the time. And then when they actually do go to dinner in the course of the conversation, again, he, again, he can sense this kind of cost benefit analysis happening in that moment. So it's almost like motivated by money you start to see everything in terms of money or motivated by stuff. You start to see other people as stuff. So necessarily, if you enter into a relationship, it won't be very happy. Either the person will leave you because they don't like to be objectified or if unfortunately they too see themselves as an object and are co con consenting to being objectified, it won't be a very deep or satisfying relationship. Because people aren't stuff. You aren't stuff, right? So if I say I am my stuff and if I think other people are their stuff, it stands to reason that I'm going to suffer the most. Everything becomes transactional. Exactly. So on the scale of right and wrong, right? This is the wrongest sort of statement. The most wrong you could be about who you are to say, I am my stuff only. So you must negate that. You must say, okay, I'm not my stuff. And, and notice later, I like we made the claim in the, I am everything, I own everything. Yes, you are the stuff ultimately. But if you say, I'm just my stuff, ah, that's where the suffering is. That, that's, that's what I'm calling out right now. The, the tendency to say, I'm just my stuff. Okay. Then you go deeper and you say, I might not be my stuff. I, I certainly own things, but I am not those things. I am the body. I'm predominantly a physical entity. Now, if this is the case, you'll be motivated by pleasure, not so much by money in and of itself, by, but by what money can buy. And we covered a lot of this in our tantric career advice lecture, right? So we don't need to go over it again, but it's enough to say that if I see myself as a body, I'm going to see other people as bodies too. And as a result, 
my transactions with them will be on the level of like bodily pleasure, or it will be on the level of avoiding old age, sickness and death, because those three things tend to happen to the body inevitably. Um, and that, that means if I see, I'm the, if I see myself as the body, I have some anxiety, maybe not as much anxiety as the person who sees themselves as their stuff. Cause that person, I mean, they're going to be feeling like, Oh no, I could lose everything that I have every day. They could lose what they have. So there's a great anxiety since stuff comes and goes so quickly. However, the body, it doesn't it comes and it goes but not as quickly as stuff you know i can go through five or six cars but still be in the same body or i could have my bank balances change on me like eight times but still be in the same body you know so obviously stuff changes at a greater rate than body so there's a bit more stability to body but not that much because even that gets old gets sick will ultimately die so if i think of my body a few problems one I'm going to feel a tremendous sense of loss when my loved ones go away because I'll equate the death of their body with the death of their individuality. I'll feel, I'll really feel the loss of my loved ones because I think they're the body. Also, I might not have the deepest possible relationships because when I relate to others, I relate to them as a body to another body. So I'm going to have very strong preferences about who I relate to. I'll only try my best, I mean, as far as it's possible to relate to bodies that I find pleasing. I'll have a strong raga dvesha, like and dislike here, and I'll move towards bodies that I like and I'll try to stay away from bodies that I don't like. Also, I'll become very obsessive about my body and what I think it should look like. And so all of that is, as you know, a bag of worms and it's it's a, this is kind of the affliction of modern society stuff and body body seen as stuff and stuff seen as body you know so if i think i am my body and other people are bodies i will suffer maybe not as much as if i i thought i was my stuff but still certainly quite a bit now i can go deeper i can say i am not my stuff nor am i the body i'm the mind that inhabits this body so if i think that if i think i'm the mind that inhabits this body I won't suffer quite as much because old age, sickness, and death won't be that terrifying to me. But, you know, one thing is that these things, old age, sickness, and death, tend to have their psychological counterparts. So I might not fear the death of the body, which to me is like an abstract thing. It's a concept that I don't necessarily think about, but I do fear the death of my mental projects. People who tell me they're not afraid of death, I disagree. They are afraid of death. It's just that death for them is not the death of the body. It's the death of like, phases of their life, the death of relationships, the death of projects, the death of basically psychological realities. You know, if, if, if they get smeared on Instagram, they feel like it's the death of their carefully curated psychological self, which they've, you know, articulated on social media. Notice it's the same fear of death, except it's not death of the body that scares them. It's death of the intellectual body or mental body or psychological construct called the self or the person or the ego or what have you. Now, the mind is also subject to a lot of change. So just like stuff, just like body, there's ups and downs. The mind is fluctuating. So here there's going to be a lot of instability, a lot of anxiety, a lot of suffering, certainly, without a doubt. Right? I have a lot of material to cover today. Um, and a lot of enthusiasm and going pretty quickly. Um, those of you on YouTube who are going to complain about this because I do get because <laughs> feel like I like the material, but I just wish you would slow down. I'm sorry, I can't. I'm just <laughs> I, I can't. I'm not going to slow down. But you know what you can do? We just discovered it. We were like, this is brilliant. You can just slow down the video. It's like, right? You can make it like 0 0.75 or 0 0.5 or 0 0.2. You know, I'm speaking at like a YouTube two or a YouTube maybe maybe like a Vimeo four or something. Is that a scale that we can use? Yeah, anyway, I got a lot to say. So I want to say it within in a timely manner. So let's keep going. Um, okay, so obviously the person who thinks they are the mind will suffer not as much as the person who thinks they are the stuff or the body. So I am mind. Or even if you say I am, I don't know, Nish, right? I am 
Kaz, I am Julian. Like all of those statements are essentially statements of mind because, you know, Kaz, Julian, Nish, these are all constructs, psychological constructs that live in the mind. Yes, they're informed by stuff and body, but if I'm predominantly in the mind, I'm going to feel like I'm transcendent to stuff and body, but definitely not to mind. I'm going to, I'm going to premise my whole identity on that mental construct and I'm going to suffer. Okay. So these three people, you could, if you think of the archetypes, the archetypical Vastu person, the archetypical Deha, the archetypical Chitta, you can put them on a scale and you can see that they're all going to be on one level, uh, to one degree suffering or to one degree enjoying themselves. You know, we talked about how intellectual joys are a little more refined, and a little more satisfying than physical joys and physical pleasures are a little more satisfying than the abstract owning of things. You know, we talked about a kind of refinement of joy as we proceed from the outermost to the innermost layers. We also talked about a decrease of suffering, the inverse proportion of suffering as we proceed from outer to inner layers. But we haven't yet talked about the increase of ethics, right? A person who sees themselves as stuff and sees other people as stuff is the least ethical. The person who sees themselves as bodies and other people as bodies is slightly better than the former, but not as good as this chitta who sees other people as not bodies, but as psychological beings. In, in, in essence, as people. But by person, you mean psychological construct. So you care a lot about the person insofar as the person is their concept of who they think they are, okay? So this is slightly more ethical person than these two, um, but still not by that much because they still sense differences and they're still going to have preferences, Raga Dvesha. Not preferences for bodies and how bodies look, but preferences for mind and how minds look. So they're only going to want to associate with people whose minds have a form that they like, right? Yeah. And Dominique's question, does it make sense to feel strength in spiritual matters more than in worldly matters? Absolutely not. I reject that premise wholeheartedly because of its dualistic assumption that spirituality and the world are separate. If you are a great entrepreneur, you'll be a great spiritual practitioner. Not always, but you have that grit and that power to succeed in business, then come, we'll make you a yogi yet. And if you are a great yogi, there's nothing in the world that you couldn't accomplish. Oh my God. Look at Siddhartha in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. He was such a great yogi that the world was child's play for him. In a few days, he made all this money and ascended the ranks of society. You know, a yogi who falls, meaning a yogi who, who, who starts to become worldly, is actually a very effective and powerful worldly person <laughs> because they have all that yogic strength, which is why it can sometimes be abused. You can get a lot of power through spiritual practice, which you can use in, in a worldly way. But ultimately, we don't see that much of a distinction. Who you are in the world is, is in a large sense who you're going to be in spiritual life. So we say you have to be really great in the world first. And if you aren't, don't worry. It will come together. But I'm saying now, the strength that I hope to impart today should permeate all areas of your life and not be confined to one thing or another, right? Okay, so let's continue. Ah, so now we have prana. As we said, there are some people who are not identified with stuff or body or mind, but they are identified with vitality. So this is obviously different from the Pancha Kosha model of the Taittiriya Upanishad that you might be familiar with um, for reasons that we discussed in previous lectures. We won't go into it. But this type of person is beyond the mind, but they're attached to like spiritual highs or, or, or peak experiences or something like that. Um, and so this kind of person is slightly more ethical than maybe these three, because their, their personhood is premised on a kind of joie de vivre, a kind of vitality that is more intrinsically human than mind, body, or stuff is. So this person is closest to their true self compared to these three, right? So naturally, they're going to be a slightly more ethical person. Their relationships are going to be a little deeper, but their relationships, again, are going to be premised on peak experiences, which are so random 
and so undependable that, you know, even, even here, there's a lot of suffering. Now, the most ethical person in this group of five outer layers is going to be the Shunya person. And forgive me, there should be a diacritical mark above Prana and Shunya, right? I forgot to put the diacritical marks here. But Shunya, this kind of person is beyond stuff beyond body, beyond mind, beyond even peak experiences or vitality. This person abides in the no self, which can be discovered perhaps in deep meditation or intuited by considering the deep sleep experience. So either you've had a lucid deep sleep, which is samadhi, or you just through reason intuit that who you are is not your stuff, not your body, not your mind, not your energy, which is just one experience in the waking state, changing in the dreaming state, and certainly absent in the deep sleep state. And if you can intuit that you are that one to whom deep sleep occurred, then you might identify as this. You might say, I am the void of deep sleep. I am the no self. So the statement anatman from like at least the Theravadin point of view is this statement. I am Shunya. So this is the kind of person who's maybe stuck here, which is obviously going to be the most ethical kind of person in this outer five. Why? Because they're not, they're not selfish anymore. Like you could say, this is the self. The, you can, can you see these boxes, by the way? Am I drawing the boxes only for myself? No, you can. Okay. So this four, I would say is personhood. is essentially personhood. Um, stuff, body, mind, and vitality makes up atomized individuality. Okay. But if you identify as Shunya, in some sense, in like a Theravadin Buddhist sense, you've seen the emptiness of the five skandhas. You've, you've noticed that you are not your stuff, your body, your mind, your vitality. You are the no self. And that means you've gotten out of your own way such that you should be rather selfless. Mm -hmm. But not always. Sometimes these people can be the most selfish because they're not interested in other people's enlightenment. They're happy to enjoy their own. They become arhats. You know, arhats in the sense that they abide restfully in the peace of no self, but they're closed off to everything outside of that because they sense that that is the highest truth wrongly. Um, not entirely wrongly. It's still it's still quite, it's still quite, um, advanced. You know, it's quite a thing to notice that you are this anatman, this no self, but still it can turn one into somewhat of an anti-social escapist, <laughs> to put it lightly. The Mahayana Buddhists actually speak kind of pejoratively of this insight. They call it Hinayana, the lesser way. It's a way, no doubt. Certainly it's a powerful antidote to the suffering that can only come through individuality. Once you let go of that individuality, you also let go of all the suffering that would have come through that individuality. But the premise upon which you give up your individuality is by accepting a new subtler form of individuality, which is the individuality of the no self. <laughs> Subtle point, right? I'm not going to get into it too much. But the no self uh, type of person is sometimes the meditator who retreats into the Himalayan caves and just sits there you know, abiding in the cave forever, never interfacing with the world or engaging with others ever again. They're not the bodhisattva type who compassionately teaches or, or enlightens. They're the arhat type, which in Buddhist terms means they're like liberated in some sense, but arguable, right? They, 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 there's a deeper, higher liberation than that. Now we come to Sankhya, Advaita Vedanta, and Tantra. So we're going to, or I, 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 rather I should clarify non-dual Tantra, because now we're going to come to the chit. So this chit, um, and Dylan is asking, once we have self-recognition of chit, does ethics become Kriya instead of performing actions for good or bad? Perfect understanding there. Um, very concise, very, very excellent. That's exactly what we're going to say at the end of the lecture. So you're right. You've jumped to the very end. We're going to get there. Don't worry. So chit is what you really are. So now we've basically said that there are five I am statements that 
Are each of them more right than the former, but all of them ultimately wrong? So if I am my stuff, I'm wrong. Not, not as if I am the void, I'm wrong, but not as wrong as if I am my vitality, not as wrong as if I am my mind, not as wrong as if I am my body, and certainly not as wrong as if I am my stuff, okay? So if I say I am consciousness or pure awareness or the witness or the subject, I'm right. These are all wrong and this is right. This is samsara, this is nirvana. I'm speaking dualistically, but I'm going to resolve that for you by the end of the lecture, ma willing, okay? But just from a naive dualistic point of view, these are all wrong I am statements and this is the right I am statement. So let's learn now together how to make that statement, not just as a kind of fluffy affirmation that we believe in, but as a conviction that stems from direct perception, or I would say even more than direct perception, you know, intuitive recognition. So let's start. Second part of the lecture. We've examined the five wrong statements. Now let's show the right statement. And this is very simple to do and we do it every time we meet and it's worth repeating. So right now, we're all of us aware. That's a, even that can be a startling revelation. To be aware of being aware or, or to, to notice that you are aware, it's rarer than you might think. Many of us are so caught up in the content that we don't recognize the context. We're so caught up in the objects of perception and the perceiver to whom those objects appear that we never recognize the ground in which perceiver and perceived come and go. We never recognize the spaciousness in which various sensations, thoughts, and emotions come and go. The arising and passing away of all phenomena happens within this quiescent spaciousness called awareness. So to recognize that now in this moment you are aware is quite a stunning insight for many people. And it's one that you should not take for granted. So you might listen to a lot of Vedanta lectures, Advaita Vedanta lectures. You might come to these talks a lot, you know, and some of you are such regulars here. It's wonderful to see you, but don't take this stuff for granted. So if I say that you're aware, actually notice it. Don't just nod and say, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm familiar with the philosophy. No, for it to work, we must show and not tell. So see, see that right now you are aware. Hmm? And notice that your being aware is the most authentic sense of self that you can have about yourself. Because in many ways, it's pri prior to any other sense of self you could have about yourself. So even to say, I am my stuff, presupposes that you're aware of your stuff. To say, I am my body, presupposes that you are aware of the body. To say, I am my mind, or to say, I am the energy, or to say, I am the absence of all things, all of that presupposes basic awareness. Bare, naked, pure, non-dual awareness. Why non-dual? We'll get to it in a moment. But for now, just notice that you're aware and notice that this is the ground of all further experience. So what does it mean to say, I am aware? Basically, it means to here and now shift your identity away from the content and towards the context. In other words, to take a stand as the subject to whom and in whom objects appear and not as the various objects that are appearing. So stuff, those things are all coming and going. They are objects to me, consciousness. Therefore, they are not me for I am the subject to whom they occur. Then I could say I'm not the body either because just like stuff around me, the body too is a series of sensations. So I'm not it. I am the one to whom body and all of its sensations appear. And of course, the mind like the body, is a stream of thoughts, emotions, subtle sensations, sukshma, subtle sensations. And because they're appearing to me, 
I therefore am able to say I awareness am distinct from the mind. And obviously that means I'm distinct from the mental construct that I typically call me the ego self, right? So I'm distinct from that. And then we can go one step further. We could say, ah, but I'm also distinct from vitality because I'm aware when I'm alert and full of energy. I'm aware when I'm having a peak experience of like bliss, but I'm equally aware, unchangingly aware of those low energy states when I'm moody or when I'm not that alert, when I'm sleepy. So both being sleepy and being awake, being ecstatic and being down in the dumps, both of those things appear to me. So they are objects to me. They are not me. And even the void that I experience in deep meditation or in deep sleep, even that is not me for even that is an object to me. So I am that consciousness to whom and in whom stuff, body, mind, energy, and void come and go. So I am that. That is what? The unnameable one. The one that cannot be an object to itself. The only non-object. The self. The Atman. The Paramatman. Whatever you want to call it. Let's now at least call it Purusha. From the Sankhya point of view, this is realization. To recognize that you are this Purusha, this subject, quite a thing apart from all the previous identities you might have had prior to this realization. Okay. So this is the first of three I am statements, and this statement is correct. But don't worry, we can refine it and be even more precise. But for now, let's just stay with this. I am Chit. By Chit, right now, I mean Purusha, the Purusha of Sankhya. I am Chit. Ah, right. Correct. All of this is wrong. This is right. I am Chit. And how do I know it's right? Because in, in many ways, it fulfills the promise of the permanent cessation of all suffering and the attainment of the highest bliss. So it's yours now if you could but recognize that I am this consciousness, that I am the unchanging witness of all of this. To stay with that, to act from that place or, or to live rather according to that place, to perceive in light of that recognition, to live with this truth, to be this truth, brings peace and, and cessation from all suffering in this sense. It, in the sense that, all suffering is merely a change on the level of the world, body, mind, or energy, or even void. If void goes away, you might become upset, quite cranky. If you're like attached to your meditations and for whatever reason, you're not achieving like a deep absorbed meditation state, you might be cranky. So notice all suffering comes from a change on the previous five levels. Awareness never changes. Just notice that awareness is the unchanging witness of all change. And as such, in your changelessness, there is tremendous peace. It's, it's a kind of invulnerability. It's a feeling of like, whatever might happen to the body or mind, I am peaceful, which, you know, is not a neglect of the body and mind. Rather, it's a peaceful, effortless loving of the body and mind and a kind of efficiency, which can only come when you give up stickiness to body and mind. Really, if you can see that you're not your body or your mind, and so much of CBT is premised on this, cognitive behavioral therapy, if you can really see you're not the body or the mind, much of the body and mind's problems will diminish, if not go away entirely, gradually. I mean, they might still be there after, but after a time, it kind of, it loses its energy because it loses its investment. So this is how you are free from suffering because you know you're not the kind of thing that can suffer. And that's a kind of joy. It's the joy of knowing that you have a free day. You know, like when you had a very busy work day and then, the work calls in, right? And says, you don't have to come to work today. It, it's, it's raining in, in Topanga and, and there's a landslide. And so all the roads are blocked. And so school is canceled today. And suddenly you realize your whole day has been freed up and you're like, it's like, that's the joy of the Sankian revelation. I'm free. 
Dobby is a free elf in the sense that I'm not confined to the body, to the mind, to the comings and goings of peak experiences. I'm not even confined to the coming and going of void. Whatever might be happening in the content, I, the context, am quite transcendent to it all. And therefore, even though there's like horrible suffering on the level of the body, what's it to me? If it's horrible suffering on the level of the mind, what's it to me? And you know, only you can be the judge of whether or not you've had this realization. The proof is in the pudding, right? If you're suffering, then obviously you haven't had this realization. If while you experience pain or mental distress, if that's experienced as suffering, then obviously you don't know that you're the Purusha. You've, you've only conflated a mental concept of Purusha with Purusha. But to, and it's, it's so like, it, it's, it's mind-blowingly simple in the sense that all one, one ha- all one has to do is recognize that they are the awareness to which and in which all objects come and go. Hmm? It's beautiful. So effortless. Okay, so that's the first I am statement. I am consciousness in this very limited sense. Here's the problem with this I am statement. It doesn't give you the kind of empowerment I want to get from today's lecture. Why not? One, because according to Sankhya, as you well know, each one of us is an individual I am consciousness statement. You know, each one of us is an individual I am. We're all discrete purushas. That's a big problem because if we're all discrete Purushas, notice that uh, we haven't solved for Anavamala, nor have we solved for Mayiyamala. Insofar as Anavamala is the impurity of individualization, limited individualization, and insofar as Mayiyamala is the impurity of plurality or duality, those are left quite intact. However, Karmamala is solved, right? I know that I am pure consciousness. Therefore, all doing, all activity is happening on the level of the body-mind. I am not the doer. I rest as the witness. So, so much of the Bhagavad Gita conveys this realization. That's how you escape karma. You escape karma and karma, the adjectival form. You You escape doership by transcending it, recognizing that you're not the doer. You're the witness of the doing. That is prakritaiva cha karmani. That is, is only prakriti alone, right? So, it's good. You've done something. This is quite a good realization. It's cleared up one of the three malas, but unfortunately, only the most superficial of the malas. Right? Um, maybe. I don't know. I mean, architecture, tantric architecture is very prevalent, you know, because temple culture is so influenced by, by tantra. Yeah, you have to point me to a temple and then we'll see. Okay, so um, now we have this idea that this sankin revelation is great because it solves for karma mala, but not maya mala and certainly not Anavamala. So while it is right to say I am consciousness, it's not that right if you still think that everyone is a discrete individual consciousness, which would cause Anavamala and Mayamala. Right? Do you see the limits of Sankhya? At least according to this model of the malas. Okay, next. Now we go to Advaita Vedanta. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna spoil it for you. Kevala Advaita by Sri Shankara will solve not only for Karmamala, it will also solve for Mayamala, but it will not solve for Anavamala. And I'll show you why. I mean, it can. It can, but in some cases. It depends on the type of Advaita realization you have. Certainly, Gaurapada, like a lot of Advaita Vedanta masters will solve for Anavamala, somehow or other. But in Kashmir Shaivism, we'd say that was a happy accident. Their philosophy, logically speaking, doesn't really allow for it from the logic point of view. But obviously, they know that logic is to be transcended, right? So they're, they're wiser than, than the logicians of the tradition, but it's to the logicians that I'm now responding. Okay, so... What does Advaita Vedanta do? It shows you that far from being unique, discrete units of consciousness, there is only one consciousness. Because 
you might intelligibly distinguish one body from another in terms of form. One body looks like this, another body looks like that. You might also intelligibly distinguish one mind for another, again, in terms of form. One mind is like this and another mind is like that. They have different sets of samskaras, you know, different predispositions, different ragas and dveshas, different likes and dislikes. Obviously, minds are formally different and can be differentiated from other minds. But consciousness is formless. So how can you meaningfully distinguish one formless consciousness from another formless consciousness? That would be as ridiculous as trying to divide the sky up into parts or to divide the ocean up into parts, which funnily we've kind of done, right? We've drawn these arbitrary lines and we're like, okay, this is the high seas and this is China sea and this is Japan sea. And then they both disagree as to where they can fish. And like, this is my continental shelf. And okay, so, but notice how arbitrary all of that is and how much suffering comes from trying to do that. Trying to separate the skies into discrete parts. That's ridiculous, but that's exactly what Sankhya has proposed. It's proposed that somehow or other, there is a way to distinguish one formless awareness from another formless awareness. Nonsense. Advaita Vedanta will say that clearly doesn't work, doesn't stand up to logic. If you follow that line of reasoning, you'll realize or you'll have this intuitive insight that only one exists. There's only one Purusha, only one consciousness. And that consciousness is called um, Atman. Atman. So it's not Purusha anymore. It's Atman because Purusha was an individual subject. Maybe what Shankara might call Pramatar, I don't know, but like the knower, the individual knower to whom many known objects appear. But this Atman is wider, is broader. It's the ground in which knower and knowing and known have their existence. So Atman is knowing. It's not the knower. It's not the known. It's knowing. Anubhavam matram Brahma. Brahma is experiencing alone experiencing is Brahman. So notice you've dissolved Maya Mala because now there's no longer any real plurality because there aren't any real others. There's only one. And not only that, there's no world of plurality either. For reasons that I don't really want to go into today, because it's not really an Advaita Vedanta class, we can do away with the existence of the world also, recognizing that it does not have objective, independent existence apart from this one consciousness. As a result, it's nothing but that one consciousness. So only one is. That's Advaita. Okay. So notice Advaita Vedanta has not only dealt with Karma Mala, mostly through importing that from Sankhya, but it's also now additionally innovatingly destroyed Maya Mala for the most part. However, there are some Advaita Vedantins that are still succumbing to Maya Mala because they actually believe Maya is a thing apart from Brahman. This is a trap that Advaita Vedantins can fall into. They can feel like there is something that's real and there is also something that's unreal. In other words, they've reified the unreal. They've made it a real unreal. And Nagarjuna says, those who are attached to emptiness, nothing can help them. You know, those who are attached to the world, emptiness is the cure, but those who are attached to emptiness, oh, what are we going to do? So those can, people can be attached to Maya. They can think Maya is like an actual ontological property. It's beginningless um, and it's different from Brahman and therefore unreal like that. So if you keep discriminating between the real and unreal, you might start to believe that the real is something. It's nothing actually. So a really good Vedantist though won't fall into this trap. They'll recognize that this is just a tool that you use as part of your sadhana, not this, not this, not this. And then ultimately you realize that which you rejected was never really there to reject in the first place. All there is, is Brahman. Okay. So technically they did it. They destroyed Mayamala, right? And also technically in the highest revelation, they've also done, they've done away with Anavamala because at this point, they no longer identify with the limited weakling, the individual called, you know, whatever it is your name is, that psychological construct that is so beleaguered and, and oppressed. Like that one is gone. 
in the sense that it belongs to the world of Maya and Maya doesn't exist. So that one doesn't exist. Done. So you, you did in some sense solve Anavamala. So Kashmir Shaivism has a very high regard for such practitioners. They really believe that they've come quite the way, but a subtle trace remains. And you know what? It's a trace of this. It's a trace of this. Hold on. Trace of this. Shunya. Because Brahman, this Brahman, this chit that is Brahman, is not that different, actually, from void. Because it's, it, I mean, I'll just say this. It's something, but it's not a thing in the sense that things are things. It's actionless. It doesn't have any qualities or properties or attributes. It's nishkriya, nirguna, nishvishesha, like nivishesha, sorry. It, 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 it's like so absolutely formless that it has no power. It has no shakti. It's quite impotent, actually. I mean, it's powerful in that it's super transcendent. It's even more transcendent than Purusha. Purusha is not that transcendent. Although each Purusha transcends its Prakriti, it cannot transcend other Purushas because other Purushas are a limitation to its own being. So Purushas are not as transcendent as Atman. Atman is so transcendent, but it's so transcendent that it cannot even be imminent, which is a problem. Right? So in many places, Sri Ramakrishna discourages people from claiming that they are Brahman. He'll say, how odd. It's a kind of hypocrisy for people to claim that they are Brahman and then feel themselves to be the doer of their actions. I mean, most probably he was speaking out against hypocrisy, saying one thing and acting in another way. But on a deep, subtle, metaphysical level, you could say that there was an inconsistency in being Brahman and acting. Because Brahman doesn't act, Brahman doesn't do. So if you claim that you are Brahman, in some sense, you should be finished with action. Or at least as Brahman, you're impotent. I mean, the body and mind might continue doing its action, but you as Brahman have no right to say that I am the source of all power. Because power implies action, implies doership, implies movement. But Brahman has no dynamic quality. It has no Shakti. It has no power. So it's not that empowered, actually. Do you see? So although this does solve for Anavamala, not really. The Anava that's left, the individual that's left, his name is Brahman. He's so important that he's not even an individual and he can't do anything. He can only sit there. Right? Hmm. Weird. Now, if Swamiji had this realization, why did he do so much? Why was he so powerful? And why did he keep extolling people to act? To like gird their loins and get out there and do some good to humanity. And it seems like his message was about action. But not karma, rather, as Dylan so um, astutely pointed out, kriya, which we're now going to talk about. So this is the, the, the third part of the lecture, and maybe the most important part of the lecture, the contribution of Kashmir Shaivism. Now, of course, I hope in the Q&A, you'll poke me a little bit more for details, because I think I kind of skimmed over this part of the lecture a bit quickly, just kind of presupposing some knowledge from previous lectures. So Brahman, not a person, and certainly Impotent in the sense that there's no shakti, there's no action, there's no doing here, right? Oh, beautiful. Aristotle, apparently, I didn't know this, but distinguishes between two types of power. Energeia, which doesn't need to do anything, and dynamis, power and action. Interesting. That distinction might be exactly what we're trying to show. I don't know because I'm not familiar with that exact distinction, but at least some kind of distinction like that is going to happen in the next few minutes. Okay, between karma and kriya. Two Sanskrit words that seem to mean the same thing, but are actually completely different, worlds apart. Yeah, not quite, not quite. Because it's kind of like two different, like yin and yang are the dualities of prakriti. This atman has transcended yin and yang, right? So purusha, atman, they've transcended yin and yang. 
So this thing also has transcended yin and yang. It's beyond both masculine and feminine, right? So because that yin and yang is only a description of prakriti, arguably. Actually, it's about what's in between yin and yang or what holds yin and yang together. It's something beyond yin and yang like that. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of complexity to that duality because it's really about that which is beyond the duality. That's why it's shown in that way. How it's always like kind of flowing into one another such that the yin becomes the yang and yeah, the two parts of one thing. Um, okay. But those two parts are still one part of the two part Shiva Shakti. Okay. I don't want to bring them too much together because there are technicalities to each system that maybe don't map on so cleanly. Um, but in the Q&A, we can, we can take it up. So now it's very important that we make this next point. What makes Shiva different from Brahman? Now, Shiva is not the meditating blue guy. You know, with some horror in, 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 in the Vedanta Life Academy, somebody once asked me this question, like, we've only been talking about Shiva, but I want to talk about Shakti. And, and, and almost to imply as if we were having a conversations about, conversation about Ishta Devatas, as if we were talking about like Shiva as the Ishta or Kali or Shakti. I was like, no, 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 that's not what I mean by Shiva. I don't mean Shiva, the Ishta Devata. No, no, no. I'm talking about a very um, exalted spiritual principle called what in Vedanta is called Brahman, I'm calling it Shiva. And more importantly, I'm calling it Kali. Now, Sri Ramakrishna's Kali is that. In many places, he says Brahma or Shakti Abed. He's not talking about Kali just as one deity in a pantheon of deities. He's talking about Kali, meaning what I'm now going to articulate. He means Kali in the sense that Brahman has a dynamic, creative, empowered aspect, which is exactly what Kashmir Shaivism is trying to say. So follow this closely. In Kashmir Shaivism, pure awareness is self-aware. Vedanta will not say this. A Vedanta will say pure awareness is aware, but it cannot be self-aware because to be self-aware is to make itself an object, right? And how can the subject become an object? So for a subject to become an object is a logical violation. So how can, so notice there's a kind of implied duality here, but in the mystical exalted experience of Kashmir Shaivism, you get the sense that not only am I aware, but I'm also aware of being aware. Check it now. You don't have to wait for a samadhi experience, right? You don't have to, to, to wait for some... I mean, obviously, those are helpful. But even now, you should be able to notice, okay, there are sensations conveying to me a world, right? There are inner sensations, thoughts and emotions conveying to me an inner world. And I am aware of both the external and the internal world. But I'm also aware that I'm aware of all that. And if I rest in just being aware of being aware, I feel this tremendous sweetness, this tremendous bliss, and this tremendous creative upsurge, this tremendous power, if you will. So awareness, according to the Kashmir Shaiva, is not this inert illumining only Brahman. It's, it's an illumining Shiva that has a self-reflexive um, ability called Shakti. So Shakti, uh, <laughs> Shakti is the... Vimarsha, the reflective power, the um, self-reflexive ability within awareness for awareness to become aware of itself. That's a power. So Vimarsha, it's a, it's a Shakti, Vimarsha Shakti. It's the power, a potency whereby awareness can, can become aware of itself, which notice is a kind of doing. Knowing is a kind of doing. So if awareness knows, it's by that virtue acting. That's what we're going to say, that knowing is a kind of action. It's a kind of Kriya. So because awareness can know itself or, or, or be aware of itself, that vimarsha is a shakti. It's, it's, a, it's an empowered action. It's a kind of kriya. Okay? We call it anugraha, self-revelation, or turiya, 
to know itself by means of itself. That's no, that knowing is a kind of action and it has the capacity to reveal itself to itself for any reason at any time in a spirit of play. That's kind of powerful. It's kind of badass that awareness can do that. And not only can it do that, it can do the opposite. The opposite of Anugraha Kriya is going to be Nigraha Kriya or Tirodana Kriya, which is the ability to conceal itself from itself. Vidya Swami and Tantrasized Vedantist will call this Avrana Shakti, the veiling, concealing power of Brahman. Brahman is able to reveal itself. I mean, it's always perpetually revealed. However, we forget. Something about being a jiva predisposes us to missing that point, that Brahman is always easily accessed and is ever readily available, right? We, so that we call Avrana Shakti, the veiling power, which, which is a power. So Brahman is so powerful that he can hide himself from himself and he can reveal himself to himself. And not only that, he's so powerful that it's his nature to appear as all of this. Isn't that pretty badass? That you take this like Brahman and without like, I mean, just like fire is hot, Brahman manifests. It's not like Brahman thought, oh, I'm lonely. I want a world and then created a world. No, it's not like that. Rather, it's the nature of fire to be hot. Similarly, it's the nature of Brahman to appear as all of this. That's pretty powerful, right? That's a kind of doing. This appearing, this manifesting, this magic trick. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, what sorcery is this, you might ask. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful piece of sorcery that you're experiencing all of this. You know, it's beautiful. Not only are you experiencing all of this, which is coming into being and going out of being dynamically in each and every moment, but while experiencing all of this, you have moments of self-revelation and self-concealment. All of that is a kind of dynamic activity that the Kashmir Shaiva, that Sri Ramakrishna wants to maintain at, at, at the point of absolute reality. So unlike the Nishkriya Brahman, the actionless Brahman that is Prakasha only, the Tantric, the Kaula Trika Tantra uh, would say this, it's not actionless. It has a dynamic quality. It's both Shiva and Shakti, and it's something far beyond even those two. Okay. Now, notice, we've come to the third kind of I am statement. The first kind of I am statement is I am consciousness from the point of view of Sankhya. Wimpy. Wimpy. Why is it wimpy? Because this Purusha is actionless. It can only witness. It's also wimpy because this Purusha is limited. It's, it's necessarily not Prakriti and it's necessarily not other Purushas. So it's a limited individual and in a world of plurality. Therefore, we, we have effectively overcome Karma Mala, but we have not at all overcome Maya Mala. So although you would be right to say I am Purusha, you would be even more right to say I am Atman. Because by saying I am Atman, you dissolve Maya Mala. You, you realize that there's no duality. There's no second thing called Maya. There are no other people as such. There's only Brahman. So you've resolved something like Maya Mala. And maybe in a sense, you've also resolved Anava Mala, right? You're no longer a person. Ego is denigrated in um, Advaita Vedanta. It's something you need to get rid of. Okay. So Anybody who comes from these first two schools is going to have a big problem with ego because their absolute is not an ego, is not a person. It's a principle. Kashmir Shaivism, though, is going to say, now, make this statement. I am consciousness, but consciousness here taken to mean that Shiva who dynamically expresses himself in the five acts of creation, maintenance, dissolution, self-revelation, and self-concealment. That Shiva, which is the non-dual absolute that is only in existence, and that Shiva, importantly, who is a person. So Shiva is a person. Why is he a person? Not because he has a body, 
bodies are not necessary for personhood not because he has any personality traits or attributes though poetically we like to attribute many of those to him um like playful like that but it's not not that's not strictly speaking true he's not a person because he has attributes gunas or personality traits he's a person because he's self-aware that's all it takes for personhood swami ashokanandaji carefully makes that point in his essay God, uh, reality as the cosmic person or something so he's a person right now that person is the only person there is and in that person appears every uh, jiva so all of you all of us we're all so many different windows through which that one person is experiencing its own infinity and that one person is the source of all power because it's the mad magician by which all of this magic appears it's the doer its power powers everything and you know who that person is? It's God, yes. But you know who that person is? It's you. It's you. You know what Advaita Vedanta says? Your, Advaita Vedanta won't say you're God. It'll say you're Godhead. It'll say you, the substance out of which you arise is the same substance out of which God arises. You and God are different. But insofar as we're considering the substratum, yeah, you're perfectly the same. You and God both are ultimately Godhead. So if you divest yourself of all upadis, of all maya, of all illusion, and if God were to do the same, if God were to divest itself of all maya, of all upadi, then you and God would be the same. Only in that sense. But Kashmir Shaivism in its radical way is saying, no, 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 not even like that. That's too limp dick for us because that Godhead is, is impotent. It's just a witness. What, what kind of thing is that? It's no better than a pot. Instead, how about this? Consciousness, by virtue of being self-conscious, is a person. It's powerful and dynamic, and so it's effectively God. And that consciousness you've already determined is none other than your very own authentic essence nature. So you are God. In the truest sense of that phrase, you are God. Now, this is the only way to overcome Anavamala. Because this is what we would call the Purna Hangta, or Purna Hangto Hum. The statement is, I am the supreme self. Purnoham. I am the self of perfect fullness. It's like Shivoham, but you have to know what Shiva means. To say Shivoham, you can say it from a Vedantic point of view. Shankara kind of does in his song, you know, Manno Buddhyankara Chitani Naham. He says Shivoham, Shivoham, but he might not necessarily be implying Shiva the way that we mean when we say Shiva, okay? So I prefer Purnoham. Purnohamta means I am that fullness, that Purnam. I am that Purnam. Okay. Ta, ta means like nas. Purnaham ta means I am that fullness. Nas. I am full. Nas. It's like, it's like Shiva-ness or Bhairava-ness or Parabhairava-ness like that. So Purnohamta is to be the cosmic person. So I'll close with this sentiment. If you can say I and by I mean everyone and everything, everywhere, all at once, that would be the only sense in which you would dissolve Anavamala. And you've dissolved it by enlarging it. <laughs> Realize you had the problem of ego. So now we've learned to expand the ego so widely, so broadly, so capaciously to include everyone and everything. And these are five or rather six reasons why this is very, very good. One is it's, it's because it's the perfect sense of humility. It's a powerful sense of humility because it's not a humility premised on weakness, nor is it a humility premised on false pride of being humbler than others or better or more spiritual than others. It's a humility that comes from recognizing that I am everyone. So no one is greater or no one is worse than me. 
for I am everyone. And so um, I don't feel like I'm better or worse than anybody else. And nor do I feel like anybody else is better or worse than me. So I get this kind of humility that's, dare I say, a kind of equality, a kind of sense of like all of us being the one Shiva, expressing itself in various ways of, in some cases, concealment, in some cases, self-expression, self-revelation. But ultimately, unchangingly, there's only one Shiva. Okay, so this is what I would call true humility, the humility that's premised on strength, on this sort of self-identity. Isn't that wonderful? Second, the second benefit of a spiritual ego premised upon Shiva is that it's just true, right? It's just that, like, hopefully, demonstrably true, that you are pure awareness, which you can demonstrate for yourself now. You can prove to yourself that now. That you are the one pure awareness, again, can be proven now. That you are the one pure awareness aware of itself can again be proven now. And that you are the one pure awareness aware of itself doing all of this can also be proven now. In that, without you, there wouldn't be any of this. All of this depends on you. And at any time, you could enter into deep sleep and this would disappear. Okay, so in that sense, you are the creative power by which all of this appears. So not only is this a different kind of humility premised on strength and self-knowledge, but it's also, it has the benefit of being metaphysically true. It's the ultimate truth that you are this pure Shiva, pure non-dual consciousness with a dynamic component and the source of all power, okay? The third reason why this is powerful is because it implies a kind of empowered action. Whereas Brahman or, or Purusha don't act, Shiva acts. However, this still is not karma. It's not doership because karma by definition requires maya, duality. Why? Because without maya, without duality, you won't get a sense of pleasure or pain. You won't get a sense of things that you want and things that you don't want. All karma is action based on the desire for an object or the fear of a consequence. And that's what we call conditioned action. So if I'm acting for something, um, I'm acting as a means for some ends, then obviously I have karma, the adjectival form. I have doership, karma mala. But if I have no maya mala, no sense of differentiation, then it doesn't matter to me. Pleasure and pain, they're, they're alike to me. And, and, and victory and defeat are alike to me. So then why act? You'd act still because it's Kriya, as Dylan presupposed, it's self-expression. So no longer is, is it an action coming from lack. It's now an action coming from fullness. Bye. Bye, dear man. So this is like, this is the action of self-expression rather than the action of trying to meet some need or fill some void. Having been filled with the, you know, beauty and recognition of your own self-effulgence, you now just share it. You share it in the form of poetry, in the form of teachings, or you share it in your simple presence, or you share it through writing a book, a children's novel, or you share it through cobbling shoes. Whatever your personal kriya is, it's no longer karma because you're no longer doing it for something. You're no longer doing it out of a conditioned response to your likes or dislikes. Rather, you're doing it just because, for its own sake, which is um, the essential nature of Lord Shiva. I, I want to say playful. I want to say creative. But again, these are maybe too humanizing for this transmental absolute, right? Okay, so that's wonderful that you get this Vivekananda level confidence. It's a confidence premised upon your true essence nature. Okay, for the last two benefits, I want to step down a bit. I've, I've thus far been speaking on an absolute level. I've been talking about Shiva in the sense of Bhairava, in the sense of pure non-dual consciousness with the dynamic potency to create all of this, right? But now let's step down and talk about the individual ego. I still think it's healthy as an individual to see yourself as a powerful spiritual practitioner. Why? Because the ego doesn't go away. 
as much as you want it to go away, it won't go away. Sri Ramakrishna gives the example of the Ashwatha tree. As many times as you cut it, still somehow it sprouts from where, who knows? God only knows from where this ego keeps sprouting. So to try to go right from ego to egolessness is foolishness. To fight the ego is more ego. It's like trying to think yourself out of a thought prison is just more thoughts. You can't think yourself into non-thinking necessarily. I mean, or rather you'd have to, you can't go straight from thinking to non-thinking. There's got to be some intermediary, right? Similarly, you can't go from ego to no ego. There's got to be some intermediary. I'm going to suggest that the intermediary now is what we'll call the spiritual ego. Sri Ramakrishna called it the servant's ego, right? I'm going to call it, I want to call it spiritual ego because it, it, it can be this statement. I am proud to have meditated so much today. A wonderful thing to be proud about, right? You might have identified that pride is wrong and therefore you don't want to make such a statement. But you know, you're just going to be proud of other things then because <laughs> that pride is not going to go away necessarily. Wanting it to go away is not the same as it's going away. Repressing it, fighting it, that's just more pride. So instead, be humble enough to be proud. <laughs> be proud. Be proud you meditated so much. Be proud you held your tongue when really you wanted to say something sharp to someone who pissed you off. Be proud that you made it to your altar today. Be proud that you practice your hatha yoga amidst all resistance. These are good things to be proud about, right? So if you are going to be proud, be proud about spiritual stuff. If you are going to be angry, be angry about things that come in the way of your spirituality, right? There's a healthy kind of anger. There's a wonderful form of lust and a wonderful form of greed. I think it's so pernicious that in our spiritual community, we see all lust as categorically bad, all greed as categorically bad, all anger as categorically bad, all pride as categorically bad, as if just by beating ourselves up over these things, they're just going to go away like that. My butt, if you're proud, be proud about the right things. If you're egoistic, be spiritually egoistic be so spiritual like just be like just you know have that sense of i'm proud but for the right reasons so this i think is helpful it's helpful to see yourself in that light because how you see yourself determines how you behave as you see yourself as a sinner that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy i'm a sinner i'm a sinner i'm you'll act that way because that's the confirmation bias that you've set up and you've crippled yourself through this self-flagellation. You no longer have the strength to overcome those temptations when they appear. Your sense of self is not strong enough when faced with the very real temptations of the world to err. It's not that erring is not a possibility. Of course, there's such a thing as sin, I would even say. Sin in the sense of missing the mark of doing wrong actions. But it doesn't help you to, to, to think of that, right? Just like thinking about error, thinking about sin is the best way to ensure that you do those things. <laughs> So we say, instead say, how can I be a sinner? I chant the name of the Lord. Shramushna would say, I've taken mother's name. What, what do I have to fear? I, I can't be a sinner anymore. I'm perfectly cleansed, perfectly pure. Now, this is, of course, not like an alibi to continue doing bad stuff. Rather, you're less likely to do, if you sincerely want to stop doing bad stuff, if you sincerely want to make spiritual progress, then it would be better to say that I am strong. So that's the, the third... The, Third reason, right? Why this is very helpful because you, um, your behavior will always be determined by your sense of self-worth and who you think you are. So better think yourself to be a yogi. I'm a yogi. I'm a child of God. Before, when you sit to meditate, you sit there and you affirm this to yourself, kind of like a sankalpa. Remember who I am? I am a great yogi. Let's say that. Say, I am a great yogi. I am a great bhakta. I am the child of God. I am the chosen few of Sri Ramakrishna. I am the servant of, of Ma Kali, like that. Whatever you want to say, make sure it, it gives you strength. 
you know, because if you don't have that strength, you won't last the hour of meditation. You'll, 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 you'll collapse with the first distraction. Your knee will hurt a bit and you'll cry and you'll leave your meditation seat. But if in the beginning of your meditation, you affirm with the stentorian voice of thunder who you are, then if your knee twinges a bit, you'll laugh. Say, what, what's that to me? Don't you know who I am? I'm the servant of Sri Ramakrishna. Right. Okay, now the fourth reason. Hanuman is so powerful, but his power is what makes him a great servant. Because what kind of a servant um, is a weak one. What kind of God would want a servant to speak? So like, look at what Sri Ramakrishna did to Vivekananda such that he was able to say, um, do you know who I am? He said, do you know who we are? We are the servants of Sri Ramakrishna. And, and it, it came with such a strength. He would say, um, if I wanted to, I could, I could chew up the stars in between my teeth. I could unhinge the world and fling it into the void. Like that. The strength from which that statement arises is that strength of knowing what it means to, have, to, to be a servant. It's, he's proud. He's proud to be a servant of God. And that pride is not pride, but rather self-assurance, self-confidence. Okay. Now, final thing I'll say why this is good. So the first reason why this is good is because it's real humility. It's humility premised not on false pride, creating as humility. It's humility not premised on weakness, but it's humility premised on self-recognition. Everyone is Shiva. I am Shiva. And therefore we're all equal. And therefore um, I love everybody because I am everybody. I'm not better or worse than anybody. The second thing, the second reason why it's good is perhaps this is redundant to say, but because it's true, it actually is aligned with the actuality of your being that you are dynamic Shiva. So to say that I am Shiva and mean Shiva in this sense would be the closest to the ultimate view of reality, at least as far as words can, can, can describe it. Thirdly, the third reason why this would be helpful is because on a very practical point of view, your sense of who you think you are is determinative of your actions. So if you think you're a strong spiritual person, you'll act that way. You'll necessarily make choices that confirm this new identity or this new vision that you have of yourself. The fourth reason why this is so powerful is because um, it's, it's, it's true humility, uh, true servitude, servitude to God premised upon power. And therefore, I'll go back to that statement I made at the very beginning of the lecture. If you're going to offer something to God, you, you should offer a bright, radiant, fragrant flower, not a wilted, limp, two-day-old flower. I mean, that's better than nothing. You know, offering that is better than nothing, but it's not as good as offering your best. So if Mark Kali is going to sever a head, it's got to be a fine head. So therefore, approach God with that same self-confidence that Hanuman had when he bowed before Rama. As a bhakta, this only makes God greater. If you're a weakling and you say God is great, that God is not that much greater because the bar is so low. But if you're so great and you say God is great, how much greater must God be then? to be that for you, you who are great, you who are like a Lord of this world, right? The fourth, I mean, final thing, the fifth thing I'll say, and, and then I'll close. And it's this. It's the nature of Ma Kali's dance to explore the full spectrum of emotion, right? Meaning she's not just going to give you things that are nice. She's going to bop you on the back of the head every now and then. Because that's part of how she has fun. It's part of how you have fun, actually. This is all your dance. When I say Makali's dance, you can get the sense that she's some deity out there. And I'm like some being caught in the wheel of birth and death subject to her, you know, fancy. Yeah, I can feel that way. But in actuality, I am Makali and this is my dance. And so I'm representing myself to myself in all of these varied ways. And some of them might be medical and financial disasters. Some of them might be horrible pain or horrible grief, right? When those, time come, when those times come, I think it's a weak bhakta that prays for them to go away. 
So weak Bhakta says, Ma, please make this stop. Please make this stop. It's her dance. This is how she wants to express herself. By saying, please make this stop, you're rejecting one aspect of Makali. You're saying, I only like you when you're Lakshmi, but I don't like you when you're PMSing. What kind of love is that? That rejects your partner when they're in a bad mood, right? To really love Makali is to love her in all moods. So the prayer should not be, Ma, make this go away. The prayer should be, Ma, increase this if you want, but give me the strength to recognize that I am not the kind of thing that can be made to suffer, that I'm actually you. Ma, no, no, not even that. Not even that. Say, uh, yes, that's good. That's wonderful. Ma, thank you. But beyond that, say, no, Ma should thank you, actually. Ma should thank you because you're the medium through which Ma can experience this, right? Hey, don't think that Ma is getting something from you, not you getting from her, okay? <laughs> so you are giving Ma the experience of herself in this way. So she should be thanking you, right? You have to just say, Ma, remind me who I am. Oh, I'm you. Wonderful. That means I am doing this actually in a deep way, in a really deep metaphysical way. I am representing myself to myself in this way for the sake of experiencing something along the spectrum of emotion, knowing full well that I am trans. I'm not the mind. I'm not the body. I'm not the world. I am that transcendent self in which all of this happens. And yet I'm wholly imminent in all of it. So the strength of being the transcendent imminent, the Shiva with Shakti is the most empowering sort of self-affirmation that there could be. So you can become small and escape the net. That, that, that works. It's a wonderful way. But at risk of getting caught somewhere in between, right? At risk of not dissolving all the way and ending up as like a weakling, which Swamiji would not have. Or alternatively, you can grow so big that no net can catch you. Obviously at risk of megalomania. But anytime that risk comes about, you have to remember that you are as much Shiva only as much as anybody else is. That you are not uniquely Shiva, right? But you are Shiva. And that means something far more profound than Brahman or Purusha. You are Shiva, meaning you are Shakti. So not only do you have Shakti, you are Shakti. So the promise of Kaula Tantra is that you become what you meditate on. Because Shiva is joyful, powerful awareness. I would say joyful. Shiva is the joyful power of awareness. By meditating on the joyful power of, of awareness, you become joyful, you become powerful. Right? And I, I suppose it doesn't even need to be said. This is an intoxicatingly non-dual view for only the Shakti exists for all the reasons aforementioned. So that means there's nothing to push away. There's nothing to draw towards you. Everything you've done was a perfect dance. It's all part of Makali's self-expression. Nothing to be guilty about. Nothing to be ashamed of. There is no high or low, pure or impure. There is just Ma. Touch your tongue to candy. Touch your tongue to feces. What does it matter? Both of them are essentially ma. Don't actually do that. That's a very high tantric practice that requires initiation and a guru. But I'm just saying it because poetic justice. Oops, poetic license, sorry. <laughs> but um, it's all ma. So why be guilty? To be guilty, to be sh ashamed implies wrong. And wrong implies right. And right and wrong imply duality, which we're just not going to allow. So the non-duality of Shiva is a non-duality of power. By meditating on Shakti, you become Shakti. So therefore, I pray to Makali that we may have the self-recognition of our own true powerful nature, not just in an absolute sense, but also in a personal sense. For nothing is not Makali. This jiva, even in part, has within it the potential of the whole. So I, like my mother, I am my mother's child after all. 
am drunk with the power of my true nature. Therefore, all of this is my drunken self-expression. In a spirit of nectarian ecstasy, I dance as all of this. In my power, it arose. In my power, it will stay. And in my power, it will dissolve. From the beginning to the middle to the end, it was power, power, power. I am that power. So now take the sword of your discernment Hold your guilt and shame and lack of confidence and feeling of not doing it right. Hold it by the tuft of its hair and decapitate it. And then lick the blood off that sword and dance in the ecstasy of your true being. Om Jayanti Mangala Kali Bhadra Kali Kapalini Durgakshama Shivadhatri Swaha Swadhana Mostute Om Naomi Devim Sharirastam Nityato bhairava kritehe pravirin mega ghanna vyoma vidhuleka vilasinim. Om shanti 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 harihi om tatsat shri ram krishna rapanamastu. Om salutations to Makali, who is the power of all mantras, victory unto the goddess. Salutations to that goddess who abides in the body of the dancing Shiva, the substratum in which all change occurs. Salutations to that goddess who is very much like a radiant and beautiful streak of lightning against the foreboding monsoon sky. Salutations to that goddess, Vilasini, the playful coquette, who is none other than my own self. Oh, may this be Shiva. May this be a blessing. May this be an offering. Om, peace, peace, peace. Jaima. I did not get to the malas and their like right hand path discussion. Maybe we'll do it another day, but let's just stop here um, and open for some Q&A. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. So next week, we'll continue our discussion. Um, we'll look at maybe, I don't know, maybe inspiration will take us some other direction. But I think next week, we'll look at the 36 tatwas, the map of reality, a different map. So I've been showing you this one over and over and over. And it's wonderful. I love it. We can continue to look at it. But next week, I'm going to show you a different map. And that map. Um, will give us a whole new slew of insights. So we'll continue our journey into the foundational principles of Kashmir Shaivism. So today was about the malas. I hope you're now confident that you understand what the malas are and that you can see what it means to really finish with karma mala, maya mala, and anava mala. So if there are any questions still, let's now go into the Q&A or if you want to share anything, especially if anything in today's lecture challenged you and you'd like to debate it, I, I really would like if you felt safe enough to do so because none of, it, none, none of this is true unless it's true for you. It must be demonstrably true in your own experience. So don't just accept it because I said it, but ask me about it. Like let's debate together. Let's inquire together and arrive at a genuine conviction. Okay. Q&A time.